This evening's talk is about equanimity. Here in Taos, <coughs> we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains uh, that surround this Taos Valley. The sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians, that sits on the north end of the town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have and happen to have the uh, good fortune to be able to look out at it and to take it in in every season, any time of the day or night or any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is actually a live energy, a a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the many, many uh, lively and constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's very intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached, nor is it averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of upekka, the Pali word for equanimity. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, really a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, it's included in, uh, as one of the um, Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, metta, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and um, upekka, equanimity. It's also one of the ten paramis, or perfections of character. It's also the second, or excuse me, one of two uh, jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. And, last but not at all least, (laughs) it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And just to repeat those, uh, we mentioned them before, but uh, mindfulness investigation of states, energy or effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained full awakening, full enlightenment, before the bodhisattva attained enlightenment, full awakening, as he sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. 
with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and very powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realm of internal and external formations and in the realm of feelings, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, changing, and passing of all internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, uh, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally, and who then abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to the desirable and the undesirable objects that come into focus at any of these six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. Here, a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode by staying in the center, by staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, meaning without favoritism, without bias, without any partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. So upekka basically manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. 
It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember uh, as a child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on what we call the seesaw or the teeter-totter. For those of you that don't know those words in English, it's a board with often a barrel in the middle. And, and you sit on two children, or adults could do it too, sit on one end and the other one sits on the other end and you go back and forth and back and forth. It's very exciting. <laughs> really, you should try it sometime. And then at some point, what I loved was to find that point of balance when I was playing with another child on the seesaw, the teeter-totter. When both of us would just be suspended in the air, perfectly balanced up in the air. And there was always a a kind of happy and almost breathtaking, exhilarating feeling inside me in the moments when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot uh, said this in uh, his own beautiful way. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used a a metaphor of putting a teaspoon of salt in a cup of water. And because of the very small container, the water will be extremely salty, quite harsh and undrinkable. On the other hand, (coughs) if we put a a spoonful of salt in a large body of water the size of, say, the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. And of course, as we all know, life is quite salty at times. For all of us at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences as well as the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to know through our practice, specifically through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's often called the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas, uh, in relationship to equanimity, as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, 
including at times the other three divine abidings, the other three immeasurables, metta, karuna, and mudita. The other six enlightenment factors, again, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, as well as the arising of various other states such as patience and faith, that they're all met, all experienced, seen and known, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. So as I mentioned towards the beginning of this exploration, the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upeka manifests as neutrality. <clears throat> There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, as it's uh, spoken of in Japanese Zen, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And of course, uh, we can bring the teaching very immediately close, right here, right here and now, in relationship to our cooks and the food here in retreat our amazing Surya and Chris Tenzos, and into our life when we go back home. And this is what Dogen says. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. And he goes on to explain that. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, of course at the time of Dogen there was uh, no uh, electricity or gas uh, or propane, you know, natural gas or propane, they used cow dung. So uh, cow dung for cooking, without distinction the oven uses, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So some cooking instructions from Dogen. How to cook your life. (laughs) So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity. What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and find uh, that the mind is tranquil, it's serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. 
I mean, this does actually happen occasionally, (laughs) as you know. The mind isn't listless. The mind, nor is the mind agitated. But rather, it's interested and very appropriately, in those moments, very appropriately energized. At At those times, there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting, restraining, or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and really clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that really contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and with composure. During the time and the culture of the Buddha, (coughs) his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. Well, much more likely in our case, the metaphor might be one like, one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and know, to take in, we could say, what's in front of us, and what's passing by, and we're able to do this with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the development of concentration and metta and the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired in the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the very habit, the very various habits of clinging and attachment and identification and aversion, that really can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of these habits of attachment, identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing then understanding to blossom and deepen and eventually to mature. As we practice... (coughs) We begin to uh, taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome and beautiful mental states such as metta and patience and faith and confidence. And I think as most of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, <clears throat> for the whole of the last two weeks of a, a very long retreat, a number of months of re- being a retreat, uh, I was uh, that I was sitting. Uh, I practiced equanimity for a, a couple of weeks, pretty solidly for those weeks, and I practiced it in the way that. Um, as a Brahma-vihara, as a divine abiding, uh, silently repeating uh, one equanimity phrase over and over and over and over again. First directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the uh, phrase that I use. It's the very traditional equanimity phrase. 
I am the heir or I am the owner of my kama. Meaning, I am the heir or the owner of all of my actions or all of my deeds of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. Well, by the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and in the heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, wow, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) And then the thought thinking went on. If this was a a Zen session, uh, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like this. And then the thought just disappeared. The thinking just stopped. Well, later that day, I was quite startled in a true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers though the note actually was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat and it said we would like you to give the dana talk the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow now at that point I was not teaching the dhamma at all (laughs) but there was this note Well, for a moment, equanimity completely flew out the window. And my heart felt like it had stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in. I can't. I can't do this now. I can't do this at all. I can't do it now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many months, weeks, months, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of my fellow yogis and speak. It's completely impossible. And then the heart relaxed and really saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) Of course I can do it. I can do it and I want to do it. And I did do it. (laughs) And I did it just fine, actually. So when when the mind saw what was going on and I realized that I can do it and that I really do want to do this, at that moment a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center, for the staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. So again, until Upeka has matured, we lose and we regain our balance and equipoise the balance and equipoise of equanimity over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear and boredom and dislike and resentment and the self, self-judgment that can manifest maybe as guilt or disapproval or a feeling of not being good enough. It also manifests uh, as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think think of as ourself, as me, as my experiences. 
Equanimity also manifests as quieting attachment and fear that comes in in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval are subside, temporarily subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they arise. So there's, they don't stick around. Equanimity fails when it produces what the Buddha called the equanimity of unknowing. The Buddha called it actually worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. Kind of a mouthful. So, so what does that mean, this worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance? It occurs when we don't clearly see or don't clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation, really couched in kindness, rooted in kindness. But instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekkha. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or based on uh, or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma, who's unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was uh, very direct, very straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. And I'm sure that um, every one of us here has experienced at some point the pretense of equanimity within ourselves. In the midst of maybe greed, dislike, boredom, resentment, anger, fear, disappointment. The kind of glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring these states, maybe pretending to ourself the pretense of equanimity. This, oh, it really doesn't matter kind of attitude, or, oh, it's really all just fine, or, I'm really, it's all okay, I'm just fine, everything's okay. Maybe accompanied by a slight, or maybe not so slight, moving away from contraction. Or maybe some sense of clinging or grasping that may or may not be known. This is equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is the called the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as equanimity, as upekkha. And I'm sure that we all know from our very own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or 
grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult, or maybe just isn't at all possible, to look on at those moments with a really true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's also not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, the heart, through the development and blossoming of loving-kindness, compassion, and the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, and concentration. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. And these eight worldly winds we're all familiar with. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction of some sort, and disrepute or maybe disregard or disrespect that come our way throughout our life. Every one of us have experienced these coming our way. A really true equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes, we could say, harsh tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And some words from the Buddha again. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame, but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride, There's uh, an amazing practice uh, that was, as I've been told, uh, 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 still maybe occasionally practiced uh, by the Hopi Indians that I very much do not recommend, but that we can really take as a metaphor for us in relationship uh, to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness evenness of mind and heart and the protection that's one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed. Climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. 
true equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart being seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And will also possess the power of renewing itself. Only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening in that that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into understanding, they are really the roots of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds, how they originate, how they come to be. Uh, And this is really the understanding of, of kama, or karma in Sanskrit. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, the various experiences of suffering, and, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, of speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and then on back and back and back. This is our kama. This is kama, or kama, or karma. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So a very ordinary example Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. And we've all experienced that many, many times. Maybe in many small ways and maybe occasionally in big ways. You can't take it back once it's come out, you know. And it has an effect. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime, in life, in this lifetime, in any given moment, is really due to our own mind, our motivations and our responses or reactions to phenomena, internal phenomena and external phenomena. It's not due to our hopes, or our wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person, or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we can begin to see that we really only meet ourselves. We really only meet our own mind, our own heart. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. 
that in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel at all. We're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity do arise along the way of our life. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what may, might be some, uh, some sort of a hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this amazing, incredible training of the heart, training of the mind, is a very, very good deed, really the best, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important uh, for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. You know, we've probably all heard, oh, forget it, it's too late. It's never too late. Really. (laughs) And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It really becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this pleasant present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our in our mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, We find that we have the strength to endure when we need that, when we need to endure. And we have the strength to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to just fall blindly into the same holes over and over and over again, but really begin to walk down a different street. the understanding of karma can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendency to create and engage and situations that really strain and sap our strength and our healthy resistance. There's something what the Buddha called a a wholesome disgust that arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance 
of the deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from what in Pali is tanha. Tanha, translated as the escape from insatiable thirst. It's a great term if you consider what goes on in your mind. Insatiable thirst. And so the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of karma or kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance... If this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours, is criticized or blamed, one thinks, I'm blamed. And equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, we usually think, or very often think, I've been praised, I'm a success. And equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one thinks, my work has failed. Or maybe, I've failed. And, again, equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks, what's mine? has gone and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing in the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mind, which that thought itself uh, can be quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's very easy to detach oneself. Gradually, gradually, gently working up to the possessions, the goals, and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, which is one of the practice venues at the Insight Meditation Society there, was for two months. And I was the first visiting teacher at the Forest Refuge. So I was there for two months, long enough to really settle in. And yet again and again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in very small, uh, simple, and sometimes kind of surprising ways. When I first got there, it had just been built, brand new forest refuge. There was no telephone in the house. Certainly, I say television. There definitely was not a television. There still is not a television. And there never will be a television. But there was no telephone in the house. And that was difficult. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. 
and there was quite a degree of attention and stress because I thought it was for me. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using this house over many years. At one point, I was told that it was okayed, that a phone would be put in the house. But when that would happen was unknown. Well, at that point, there was a very quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred, actually. And I relaxed, and I really, truly felt that it just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it wasn't for me, it wasn't mine. So during that same two-month period, it was decided uh, to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. And Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at that time, brought the rug catalog catalog over uh, for us to look at together and decide which rug to purchase, to order. Well, it clearly wasn't a rug for me, because it wasn't for my house. It wasn't my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were actually choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it was really such a, a different experience in the heart with this. Not that subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was really an openness, a spaciousness, no contraction, no clinging in the choosing, and it was a lot more fun doing it that way. So the small things first that we think are ours, and working up to giving up or letting go of or relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish maybe the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. This is an important aspect. It's the thought of these being who I am, that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am, that we give up, that we let go of. Beginning with small aspects, maybe, of our personality. Qualities of seeming minor importance. And very slowly, through our practice, working up to letting go of identification. Practicing detachment is the way that it's really spoken of, in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we might regard as the very center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, He says to himself, Oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am? Being me? Even including the positive emotions or aversions or the specific gifts which we might regard and be identified with as the center of our being. (coughs) To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really, truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it possibly cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. 
Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of karma or kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind (coughs) of specific neutrality, (coughs) it isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, (coughs) but really out of a fullness or completeness of connection and understanding. At some point along the way of our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. (coughs) In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, Concentration and insight, or concentration and understanding, occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment and the heart qualities of metta, compassion, and appreciative joy. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within within one's heart and mind, which is really manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. The Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. As an aid, uh, a nutriment for the arising and development of equanimity, the Buddha tells us to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, and insight, and have the knowledge and vision of liberation. He said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. And the commentaries to the suttas tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help us towards the arising or help towards the arising then the development of equanimity. And these are developing and maintaining neutrality towards living beings, developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects, developing and or not spending a lot of time with possessive people, associating with people who maintain neutrality toward beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, the commentaries say, to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of equanimity. As we practice, we begin to come to know when equanimity is in us. We know when it's absent. We come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice here in retreat, at home, in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. 
And because of this, it's inevitable that the wholesome and beautiful factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout and blossom and eventually mature within us. It's our karma, we could say. So I'd like to close the talk with um, one short piece from the Udana, which is uh, a small book of the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to him or to her? And let's sit silently for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.